This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. Okay, I'm set and Mike, have you, have you done podcasts before? I know that you've probably done media because of your book and all of that, but just right. know that things don't need to be perfect. We don't have to say it the best way the first time. Well, don't, don't worry. I'm sure it'll be perfect the first time. I, I, I'm expecting that. Yes, fully. <laughs> right. Always perfect the first time. Exactly. Who we are as people shapes who we are as teachers. About how our lived experience informs our teaching. Uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this. You're, you're free to do that. We don't have to have it perfect. We are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life. The key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively. We have so much to learn from the other side of campus. <laughs> From the University of Texas at Austin, this is The Other Side of Campus. Hello, I'm Dixie Stanforth from the Department of Kinesiology and Health Education, and I'm a professor of instruction as well as a provost teaching fellow. And I'm Stephanie seidel Holmston. I'm an assistant professor of instruction in the College of Liberal Arts and a provost teaching fellow. Today, we are talking with Professor Mike Starbird. When I when people ask me, well, what do you do? I often say, I like to teach people the joy of thinking. Mike is a university distinguished teaching professor of mathematics at the University of Texas at Austin. He's been at UT his entire career, except for some very interesting leaves. He spent some time at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. He was also at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. That is so cool. He has received more than 15 teaching awards. He co-authored a textbook, The Heart of Mathematics, An Invitation to Effective Thinking. He has also produced a massive open online course, a MOOC titled Effective Thinking Through Mathematics. And later, we'll probably dive into your recent book, Five Elements of Effective thinking. Mike is also a Provost Teaching Fellow, so welcome to the other side of campus, Mike. Before we get into your book, I want to talk about puzzles. So at a recent meeting, Mike, you may remember, you gave us a puzzle, a puzzle to take up that awkward time before the meeting actually started. You said, we've got two strings, that burn over an hour's time, but at unpredictable rates, how would you use the two strings to measure 45 minutes? People in the meeting started posting possible answers in the chat, and it seemed like through the chat, we kind of ended up with some solution about crisscrossing the strings or something like that. I kept thinking about the puzzle, and I couldn't solve it, so I called you, and I said, Mike, look, I just don't have a mind for puzzles. I've tried. I've really tried, but it isn't any use. I know, right? You remember. What did you say? Everybody has the same kind of mind. You can do puzzles as you can do other things that are creative. It's a matter of how you use your mind, not the mind you have. Right. So you're like, oh, that was the worst conclusion you could come to, Stephanie, right? And so then we sat there for an hour unpacking that puzzle. So tell me, Mike, what draws you to math and to puzzles? Well, I I love puzzles. My real goal in my educational profession is to get people to think more clearly, think more creatively, and to enjoy thinking. 
when I when people ask me, well, what do you do? I often say I like to teach people the joy of thinking. And it really is the joy of clear thinking. It's the idea that a person can learn to be creative. It's not an inborn trait. It's something that you can learn. And I love people who tell me, oh, I'm not creative. Because to me, what an opportunity to show them that, in fact, they are. That because everybody can be. It's a question of what you actually do with your mind. And so I use puzzles as a metaphor for telling people that they can use their minds in productive ways. In my own classes, for example, I will give a puzzle. And when, when people are not able to do it, sometimes I'll bring a volunteer to the front of the classroom and I'll say, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you hints about how to think with no reference to the puzzle. And by the end of this inner interaction, you will be able to solve the puzzle. And then, and then we demonstrate this to, to everybody to show that to be successful in coming up with new ideas, it's how you approach questions. And I'll give you some specifics about that. Some kinds of things I would tell a, a student. First of all, I would ask, do you understand the question? I'd ask them to say the question back to me. And by the way, this is difficult. Often people get the impression they're working on something when they don't really understand what the question is. So being extremely clear about what the question is, is one of the important productive steps towards solution. The other kinds of things that I'll ask them to do is to say, well, if this question is something that you find difficult, can you think of a related question that's simpler? Rather than thinking about the hard question, can you think of a simpler question? And so it's, what do you do with your mind? Instead of saying, oh, I'm gonna work on this hard thing, I'm gonna work on this hard thing. Instead you say, I, okay, I give up on that. Instead, I'll, I'll work on the problem of devising a related but simple question. So it's how you use your mind. And people come away from the experience with these puzzles by realizing that the difference between success and failure in being able to solve the puzzles has to do with what productive strategies you use in thinking. And then of course it's a metaphor because I'm trying to convey the idea that whatever they're doing in, in life has that same property. Mike, I'm interested because you have been teaching for decades what percentage of students would you say does that process actually get a reasonable answer to your puzzle? I'm just wondering, does the process more often lead to a eureka moment of, oh, okay, I get it in general, or do they actually solve the puzzle? Well, they certainly solve the puzzle. So that's uh, one of the steps that they can experience is actually being able to solve the, solve these puzzles. By the way, I have a whole, whole collection of puzzles that we, we do and that people can choose from. But how many people are, are successful? I would say, you know, it's an interesting question of how successful I actually am at, mm -hmm. at changing people's lives. And, and it's not clear. I mean, I, I think the reality is that you don't get everybody. But with various strategies of instruction, I think you can predictably influence quite a high fraction. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example of a course, a kind of a course that I teach in upper division mathematics. I sometimes uh, teach courses by presenting students with theorem statements without proofs and ask them to devise the proofs on their own. 
for many students, this is the first time they've been asked to come up with the substance of the course on their own. Generally, people from mathematics instruction through high school and even part of college view their instruction as somebody who knows it, tells them how to do it, and they just try to learn it. And here I'm asking them to produce things on a daily basis that are the substance of the course. Well, predictably, it changes the student's relationship to the subject content. Instead of thinking themselves purely as consumers of other people's ideas, they morph into people who are creatives, creators of ideas. Mm -hmm. And that gives them a different relationship to knowledge. So uh, one, of the, one of the things that I advocate is a deep understanding of ideas. And um, a litmus test for that is, can you say to yourself, I could have thought of that idea. And if you say, no, boy, I don't know why that person thought of that idea. That just seems like magic for them to thought. Then you don't quite understand it yet. So to me, getting people to say, can I think of that idea or could I have thought of the idea? then that, that shows that you see where it came from. Mike, on the string puzzle, I remember the way we talked is I said, Mike, I can't work my brain around this problem. And so you, I mean, I'm realizing as you're talking, this is exactly what you did to me, right? I was a <laughs> pupil of yours. And you said, well, what is the question? It took me time to actually say it back to you what that question was. And I felt my brain working to try and get my head around that question. And then I said, but Mike, I don't know what to do now. And you said, well, just give some options. And I thought, fine, I could light a string. Then you said, exactly. And then what will you learn when you light that string? That was the learning process. And I felt it happening in my mind where when I would see the puzzle and think I can't do it, that's my pattern. And then you walk away. But instead, right. your questions led me to actually solve it. Right. In, in fact, one of the ways I sometimes phrase what I try to teach people is what to do when you don't know what to do. Uh -huh. <laughs> and there are various things you can do that are very practical. And, and including what, what you just said, the idea that repeating what the question actually is, it just is so common that that is a huge obstacle. And it's not a known obstacle. People often feel that, oh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I read that question. But then you actually ask, well, what is the question? Well, there's some vagueness. Uh, I don't, what are the parameters exactly? Uh, what was the situation? Okay, yeah, I got some, there's a string, there's a match, I don't know, you know. You know. <laughs> then forcing yourself to actually pin it down. And by the way, the reason I think this is important is that in dealing with actually important questions in the world, you know, we're dealing with social problems, we're dealing with uh, whether it's climate change, whether it's racism, whether it is our issues about uh, how to improve the world as, it, as it's uh, evolving. To me, the strategies that we use to intervene can be very instructive. In fact, I was thinking about, you know, we're, we're looking at this uh, Supreme Court hearings, and I was thinking, well, maybe what they should have asked the candidate was to say, would you be willing to take a course in climate change? This is a huge issue about the world. Would you be willing to take a substantial course, spend the time in climate change? And to me, what a constructive strategy that would be for all people who are in position of making political decisions about issues that make a difference. 
is to actually learn about the whatever the topic is that happens to come up. So to me, there would be choices of uh, possible interventions that might come about sort of mimicking this idea of do you actually, to what extent does one understand what the mm-hmm. issues are involved? In, in particularly in complicated questions, it's not clear what the actual question is. For example, if you're, if you're dealing with a question on, on social policy, is the question an economic question? Is it a psychological question? Is it a question of history of social habits? Is it a religious question? And by asking these, these questions and, and what things have changed over time and what parts have not changed over time. So understanding how human understanding of anything has evolved over time can clarify what, what the core of the issue is. I, I'm always delighted at cases where you, you have a, an issue that appears to be in one domain and then it shifts to another domain owing to some sort of, of new development. We call those principles of the universe in my world, and they are, you know, they're consistent across topical areas. What Stephanie just described, though, to me, Mike, made me think, because we've talked tennis and, and exercise before, but yeah. what Stephanie was describing was it sounded to me a lot like the ability to create new neural connections in her brain that had never been, the path had never been opened before. But by walking her through those steps, you're, you're basically, it's like learning a new tennis skill where when you haven't trained that way or you haven't hit the ball that way, and maybe you don't know how to hit topspin, you've got to make, create those pathways. And it seems to me that that's what Stephanie was just describing happening in her brain with the string puzzle was that those pathways had never been open before and now they are. And she has this whole new way of thinking about things. Would that be a fair comparison, do you think? Absolutely. And and the only quibble I would say with your statement is that I, I think you said something like she didn't have the uh, ability or something to do that. And of course, that's not right. She has the ability. All people have the ability. It's a question of wh- what practices of mind have been utilized. And so what I'm encouraging people to do is to employ opportunities of their own minds that they have, but just don't uh-huh. use yeah, those and pathways had just not been explored yet. Exactly. So almost sounds like you're encouraging people to become explorers and be willing to open these new pathways that they've never traveled before. Exactly, exactly. And by the way, it's interesting you bring up tennis because I'm actually, I'm actually taking tennis lessons this, this, uh, this year. I, and I, I, don't, I haven't over my career. I've played tennis all my, uh, all my life, but I haven't really taken lessons. So uh-huh. I decided to take some lessons because I, I play this friend of mine and I keep losing. Tennis, anyone? <laughs> I figured I better do something. I, I've taken lessons which involve changing, trying to change. Uh-huh. And what I work on is my strongest shot. So historically, my strongest shot is my forehand. And I uh-huh. have quite a good forehand. But my instructor is telling me how to do it even better. And by the way, one of the themes I advocate is working on one's strengths 
Mm-hmm. Very often it's on your strengths that you have the biggest possibility for greater improvement rather than working only on your weaknesses. Very often working on your strengths actually causes weaknesses to get better sort of by magic. It's, it's very interesting to me. It is magical, right? And in the physical body, yes. when you injure, you remember we've talked a lot about knees and injuries. And when <laughs> yeah. you injure the right side of your body, so let's say your right knee is hurt, if you train your left knee, there are some strength gains that happen on the right, like on the, the right. magic you're talking yeah. about. One thing I wanted to bring up about this taking these tennis lessons is it makes me think that all of us who are teachers should actually do this. Take oh, lessons in something that particularly that that we're not necessarily good at or that that we're we're struggling with because it gives you empathy with mm-hmm. students who are actually trying to learn. And to me, for example, one thing is that in trying to learn something new, what actually happens is you get worse. Right. Because I've, I've, I've hit a wonderful forehand, uh, quite a good forehand for years. And now I'm trying to learn a, a different strategy which if successful would be better, but the intermediate time when you're developing the new skill is so frustrating because you're worse. Yeah, it's exactly. painful for sure. And yet you persevere through it and you end up with a better outcome. So exactly. You know, I, I like the analogy to sports because for me in my conversation with you about the puzzle, it was learning a new pattern. Mm-hmm. And the pattern that I learned was don't walk away from it, but to instead ask, what do you know? That sense of out of this complicated situation, what do you know? What would you try? And what you tried, what did you learn from it? Even if that try, that attempt was not the solution, what did you learn in the meantime? And now I've got new patterns, like Dixie was talking about, new neuropathways that I can try next time rather than the old one, which was, I don't get it. I don't have a mind for this. Well, and and let me just say, you said, even if it doesn't work. And I would say, especially if it doesn't, something that fails is directive. It's telling you a insight into what does not work. And that is positive knowledge. And so- so uh, what I, I tell everybody, if, for example, suppose you want to write a paper on something. Well, a good idea is to sit down and just write and just 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 don't don't worry about it. You just write, make up data. If you don't actually know it yet, you just make it up and write it down and then look at it and look at it and look for two things. One, look for things that accidentally, so to speak, came out great. You used the right word. The reasoning was strong. You knew what the evidence was, and it was compelling. Mm-hmm. But then also look at the things that are wrong about it, places where you didn't quite say exactly what you meant. You, the, the reasoning wasn't compelling. You didn't have strong evidence that grounded your reasoning. And then don't throw those away and just cross them out and say, okay, I'm going to ignore those. Instead, each one of them you look at and you say, what exactly is deficient about that particular part of the, of the work? And then that is directive. Then you say you've changed the problem from saying, how am I going to get the correct answer to correcting known and analyzed defects in an attempt? And, and the one thing I always tell people is, you know, you may not be able to get it right when you're working on something. You may not be able to know what the correct answer is, but you can certainly get it wrong. That's something you should do. 
if you don't know what to do, get it wrong and then look and see what exactly is the defect in your attempt. Yep. I love looking at things that way. Math is a wonderful thing. Math is a really cool thing. So get off your Let's shift gears a little bit. So, Mike, you know how much I admire your teaching as well as how I fell in love with your book, The Five Elements of Effective Thinking. The, oh, you're, you're very kind. The moment that I read it and told you I needed to order a case on Amazon, and you know that I have it at the top of my great reads list for my interns. And when I get students who write about it, I try to share that with you because it is so impactful. Could you share a little bit about how the, your book idea became reality? I know you worked with a co-author on it. But it does seem to embody those principles of the universe that are applicable no matter what someone is teaching. These principles hold true. And that is what resonates with me. And you all have done it as well as anything I've ever read. Well, thank you so much for your, your kind comments. And but, but actually, that's exactly what you phrased was exactly what we were trying to capture in the book. I'll tell you the history of that of the book. I have a life policy. When a friend asks me to do something, I say yes. And so this has gotten, I say yes. So I, it's gotten me into all kinds of things that over my life, almost all good. <laughs> almost all good. <laughs> so one friend of mine was Betty Sue Flowers, a very good friend of mine. I don't know if you've heard of her. Betty I Sue Flowers Betty. was an English professor here, and she was a poet in, in, at UT. And she was the director of Plan 2 years ago. The Plan 2 program is an honors program in liberal arts here at the University of Texas, and it's a wonderful program. At that time, they had a mathematics course and actually a science course also that Betty Sue looked at and said, well, these courses just aren't very good. You know, they're not really helping. There's, they're sort of, the way I phrase it is she, she's found two defects. They were boring and useless. So other than that, <laughs> other than that, fine, you know. Other than that, sign up. Other than that, well, it was a required course, so the students had to sign up. So she did, as every good administrator does, she formed a committee. I was on the committee, and the outcome of it was that I was asked to teach, uh, to develop a course in this. And it took me years to do this. It failed the first three or four times I tried, because mm -hmm. I kept thinking that my goal was to teach students math. And 54 is a 45 more what is the answer, Marta? Nine. And that's a magic number. And then it finally dawned on me that the real goal of the course is to try to convey practices of mind that the students will actually use in the life that they will actually live. In other words, they'll become artists. Can I help them to become better artists? Can I help them to become better writers? Can I help them to become better business people, politicians? Can I help them to become better citizens of the world? by helping by through the mathematics as a vehicle. And so then it can then the challenge became, well, what are those practices of mind that I would like to have people include in their how they live the rest of their life? And it took a very long time, by the way, you know, we're talking about more than a decade of refinement to find what are these practices of mind that seem to be universal and conveyable whether through mathematics or anything else. And 
so Mike, how did you uh, how did you end up at the five elements? Because the the beauty of that is that 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 does cut across everything, and it's a you know it's a picture that people can really connect to and and see things as separate and distinct and yet integrated. Right, and the uh, the actual answer is that the book, the writing of the book, and the creation of the book was done by using the strategies that the book advocates. Uh-huh. It's exa- exactly what it is, uh-huh. which means that we made lots of mistakes. We, we, we started, by the way, for, for a long time, it was a top 10 list. There were 10, 10 things on the, on the list. Uh-huh. <laughs> it got reduced to five. We were, we were com- very, uh, we got a lot of clarity about the idea that we wanted to write something that was very short. The Five Elements of Effective Thinking book, there's an audible version of it, and it takes three hours and nine minutes to read out loud. It's very short, and, we, and I have uh-huh. probably 500 pages of writing on my computer, and it, we just were merciless in reducing it to, to the uh, very basic elements. Yes, the elemental truths. You guys the did it. Truths. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> The, the answer is that there is nothing magic about it, that it comes. And by the way, one of the things I would love to improve education globally would be if in every single discipline, we made manifest the process by which the outcomes arrive. In other words, very often in all of the courses, what do students see? They see great literature, polished literature. They don't see yeah, how many drafts, how yeah. many drafts there were. They don't see the cross outs, the changing the words and this and that. And they don't realize that whatever the product is could have been better. If the person had worked on it another year, it would have been even better. And this is the same thing with the, the five elements book. I mean, we we honed it and then we looked at it and then we looked at it again and we honed it and, and it finally and at some stage we stopped and that was it. But it's not that it's perfect and it's not that it couldn't be better. And it's it's a process of continued development. Well, and to that point, Mike, how many times in the classroom do we even demonstrate changing our mind or learning something? We often come exactly. into the room ready to kind of demonstrate the conclusions that we've come to. And yet that's not the learning process. When mm-hmm. my husband was reading the book, he loved fail to succeed. So that was a sort of family motto for a little while. And my to the point that my daughters now will roll their eyes if we say, oh, <laughs> fail to succeed. What does that look like in the classroom? Yeah, well, it, first of all, it's, it's honoring mistakes as useful parts of learning. And, and the, way I, the way I think about it, and, and you can tell me in your own disciplines whether this is true. As far as I know, every single creative success is built on the ash heap of failed attempts. I, I don't know any, but in any subject that isn't that way. And so if you cut off the mistakes and you act as if, oh, well, no, that's not the way uh, you should go, you, you're presenting a, a picture of life and success and learning that says you go from success to success to success to success. Mm-hmm. I don't know anybody who's had that experience of life. And certainly nobody who's pre, you know, created uh, some creative work. That's just not the way it works. 
And what happens is you have missteps and you learn from those missteps. In my own classes, for example, if I have a student who sometimes I'll, I'll have a person will get something right on the, uh, in, in my upper division classes, I have everybody at the board and they're all presenting their own work, their own uh, presentations. And in some cases, there are canonical errors that, that uh, people make. A canonical error is uh, there are, are certain attractive approaches to some mathematical problem that just happen to be wrong. They don't work and they're wrong, but it's very attractive. And almost everybody who begins uh, this subject will make that same mistake, canonical standard mistake. And so, so what happens is sometimes a person will do it right on the board. They'll get it right and have missed it. And so then I'll ask somebody in the class and I'll often have been walking around or talking to people in, in advance. So I'll know somebody who's made this standard mistake. I'll say, Oh, you know, uh, Joe, would you, would you go up and present your approach because it's wrong, you know, and have them go up and, and present it and explore that. And we'll talk about, well, why is this attractive and why is it mistaken? Because you're learning something there. You're learning what it is that made that effective. So that's one, one method of bringing uh, actual mistakes is you celebrate them as mm-hmm. steps in the right direction. You don't, you don't, and, and by the way, in, in my classes, in the, in the upper division classes where they're presenting their own work every day, people make mistakes every single day. So they, we soon develop a culture in the classroom where making mistakes in public is just something that happens every day. And it's not, you, you no longer cringe about it or feel bad or anything. It's just, well, of course you're going to make mistakes every day. Yeah. This is what I wanted to ask you about, Mike. You know, some of your examples, you talk about bringing students to the board Sometimes it's an individual student. Sometimes I imagine the entire class working. And I'm also aware of students that may have imposter syndrome or a mistake in front of their colleagues is devastating to their own ego as a student. Are there other ways to demonstrate the learning process and the mistake-making process without singling out a student? People have told me, that you shouldn't tell a person how to feel. You know, you can tell people how to think. You should. I disagree. I think that should be part of what we teach people. How to feel. In particular, how to feel about making mistakes. You don't take it as an axiom that, oh, of course, if you make a mistake, you feel terrible. That is a cultural norm. That is something that is taught and learned. And it's repeated often in our, in our system. You get credit taken off. You get insulted or something. So I am overtly, part of my business is to say, how should you feel when things don't go well, when, when you're stuck? I want people to enjoy struggle, to really enjoy that state of mind of saying, ah, oh, I don't know how to do this. What am I going to do next? I'm gonna, oh, I got to work on this. I want them to enjoy that and see it not as a negative, the idea that they don't right then understand something and that they have to work for it but to view that as one of the joys of life. I'm in the same boat as you because of my discipline being physical movement and, you know, encouraging students to be willing to try things and understand that you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to do it well. And that that's how you learn. That is the only way that you learn. So do you have any thoughts about how things may have shifted over time? Students who perhaps 
struggle more with this. I know I've probably met with more students in the past years, recent years, about the issue of how I communicate this type of information. And while you try, I, I know I work hard at having a very inclusive classroom that we are all in this together. We are all learning. We are all figuring this out together. And that's how we learn. Do you have any tips or ideas for how to communicate that well? Because it's challenging. It, it is challenging. And, and it, it shouldn't be, I, I don't want to downplay it, because if you have a person who's particularly shy or particularly mm-hmm. sensitive, Anx- anxious, way, yeah. it requires special uh, attention. And I, I, and I really do work hard to make people not feel bad. But part of it is that I try to make the classroom fun. You know, we are laughing, we're having yeah. fun. So uh, so I think that the sort of uh, the tone, I think about tone very much in the classroom, that I want people to be, you know, uh, joyful about their studies. Now, not everybody does that, by the way. The different people, different instructors have different personalities. And some, for some, that's not a theme or that they even want to promote. Mm-hmm. They want it to be a very serious kind of a thing. So there are different strategies of, of doing that. But I'd say being aware of what the individual's uh, experience actually is. And by the way, you're going to get it wrong. I, I certainly get it wrong from time to time. I think I'm pretty mm-hmm. good at it, but I, I get it wrong. By the way, I should say in my classes, I point to people and ask them to speak. Uh, I, I don't just ask for volunteers. So I, I will. And many people don't do that. But I, I, I do that. I'll just point to people. But what, what I'll do, particularly if it's a bigger group, and particularly before I know people well, I will say, you know, I'll, I'll ask people to talk in groups of two or three. And mm-hmm. then I'll say, Mary, would you tell me what your group thought about this? So then it's dispersing the responsibility a, a bit to the group. That's one, one strategy. What I tell people is, if they avoid mistakes, they are inhibiting their learning process. If they avoid them too much, if, if they're saying, oh, I don't want, I'm very careful, that is a, a negative toward actual learning and, and creativity. Fascinating. I love hearing this. It gives us all hope for our questions, <laughs> I think. Like as I was reviewing the book this week, I was struck that so many of your elemental truths have kind of become their own thing. So, for example, I, I hadn't thought this when I first read the book, but earth and deep understanding, you know, that's now mastery and you need 10,000 hours and fire and fail to succeed is a growth mindset and water. Look back, look forward is flow there. I mean, each one of them has really become its own, uh, this standalone area that we talk about in, in teaching and in communication. So I was wondering if you had to pick one of the elements, do you have a favorite? And is there one that you perhaps really feel like you could tell us one story of what that element looked like in the classroom? As you said earlier, all of these themes interact with each other. So mm-hmm. they're really not standalone. Uh, right. And, and I used to say, well, you know, these elements are more or less all the same and so on. 
more recently, I've been I've been willing to <laughs> pick one instead of another. I would say that to me, the two most important ones are understanding deeply and change. I want people to have a self view that they are embarking on the lifetime process of self-creation, that this is something that we do for our entire lives, that we are in the business of altering or changing our minds based on new experience and new skill and new, new learning, that it's a view of the world and of themselves that people are under construction, that it's, it's not the case that things are all fixed and in particular, that a person, him or herself, is an entity that is being constructed and could become many, many different things, depending mm-hmm. on what kind of process one embraces in, in further development. So deep understanding, what, what I mean by that is, is to get people to get in the habit of looking at fundamentals with more attention. And to try to see, can they become more aware of what they actually know well and don't know well? And in the service of actually changing the way they learn and the way they know. So one of the assignments I give uh, some of my students in some classes is change your mind. You have to change your mind on something on the basis of learning new evidence and becoming more sophisticated in your understanding of the issue and then describe how your mind has changed. It doesn't mean, and by the way, this is an important thing. One of the things I teach is doubt. Doubt is important. I think it's, it's a very important for a person to, to doubt their opinions, particularly on these complicated questions, you know, on, on mm-hmm. questions of religion or politics or uh, these kinds of social questions. Those, I think everybody should have doubt on. And so what I advocate is that when a person expresses an opinion or to themselves, that they attach it with a number that is a percentage of how strongly, how confident they are that they're correct. So they can say, I, I oppose the death penalty 80%. Yeah. And then if you, if you gain more knowledge about things and it, it tends to push you in another direction, you can say, well, I still oppose the death penalty, but now only 70%. That's a change. But being having the mindset that you are in a position of altering who you are on the basis of more sophisticated understanding and more evidence seems to me a healthy attitude to have. And so I actually have them write a paper and give a presentation about changing their mind. As a, so that's a very direct, practical instantiation of, of a goal. So thinking of changing, how have students changed over the years that you have been teaching and how are we doing right now among the students in terms of the capacity to learn through failure? So I I am not one who have seen or who thinks that there's been huge changes in our students, but other people may may feel that way and may be right. What percentage would you say you feel that? (laughs) How much doubt would you attach to that? No, I would attach a lot of doubt to that because, because I really... There are some changes that are definite. For example, they're much worse at arithmetic. You know, if you ask people their multiplication tables and how to do arithmetic by hand, they are really bad. And they were somewhat better before, you know, years ago. But that's that, that's a, a minor thing in a way. As far as are they willing or less willing to deal with failure? 
I don't know. You know, we have names for these things, imposter syndrome and all these kinds of things. And I, you know, I understand. I think it's good to identify these things and give them names. But, you know, it's a continuum. It's always been a continuum. I'm a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. I said, Holmes? Why? This morning. Allow me to congratulate you on a brilliant bit of deduction. You know, and one of the things that he said, it's as much a mistake to underestimate your abilities as to overestimate them. He's, 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 he's not a person who believes that modesty is a, is a great asset. It's a question of accuracy. This was, by the way, when he, when he stated to, to Watson that his brother was smarter than he was and more able to do these things. And Watson said, oh, you're just being modest. And he said, oh, I don't agree that modesty is a virtue. It's just literally true. He happens to be better than I am. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, that's my problem. So in any case, yeah, I, I think it, it, these things are, are always on a continuum. It's good to be attentive to them and being aware of different classes of, of issues is important, but it's individual. A short answer to your question is, I don't personally see a lot of huge difference over time. Actually, the students, of course, are way better in the sense that the quality, you know, the percentage of their high school graduating class has gone from, you know, it was much easier to get into UT decades ago. And now it's a very elite kind of university. So you have to be in the top six mm-hmm. percent of your high school class to get in. Well, that's pretty good. So so that has changed, I guess. So technically, I guess they're better. But well, people are people. People so, are people. So, Mike, would you have any advice for teachers, particularly teachers who are starting out? I know you mentor many people. And I just wonder if you were to summarize your thoughts on that, what, what would you share with someone who's in the early phases of their teaching career to be able to, to grow and develop and to learn some of these principles? To me, the basic question of education is, what do you hope your students will have gained from your experience with them, a class or uh, some other experience that you're giving them in 20 years? What, What are the lasting lessons? And very often it's not little details about chapter 13 in the fourth part of the class. What it is, is, is bigger questions and Taking the time to think about what those bigger questions are for you. What do you value in a person long term? And it can be things such as persistence. It can be things like like I've talked about before, enjoying the struggle, confidence to deal with challenging questions. Those kinds of practices of mind and willingness to learn, you know, a love of learning. If you say those are the things that you value, and that you would like your students to have after after the coercion of school is behind them. You know, <laughs> you know we're, we, we're in a position to tell them what to do. Well, that, that's not what we're trying to help them become. We're trying to see what are they going to do after they've finished? Will they enjoy reading? Will they enjoy music? In, in your case, Dixie, will they enjoy exercise? I mean, to me, Boy, you could not give somebody more for a lifetime of improvement than the love of exercise. You know, the love of, of conditioning and enjoying your body. What a, what a gift. So to me, having a, a, a teacher, think about what are those long-term lessons. If you value your students becoming independent thinkers, then maybe you, in making daily choices, 
Maybe you say, well, giving a really clear lecture that doesn't have any mistakes and I got that PowerPoint exactly right, maybe that gets devalued. Whereas you say, what is the student doing? Is the student actually thinking for him or herself? Or are you just, are they just remembering what you say? And then it makes a difference in daily practice because then you have in your head, what is the long-term goal? And then I, I have great respect for, for instructors. If you think about it, then you make a different choice in how you conduct your the experiences that you're giving students. And it would seem really important to reevaluate that regularly, you know, because things do change, but you also have to evaluate whether or not what you're doing is actually accomplishing that and right. be willing to say, you know, <laughs> that, that was my goal, but it didn't work out so well. And yet, right. what a beautiful description. I wish when I was an early days teacher, I had been motivated by thinking like that. It, it does remind me of what you said at the very beginning of our time together, Mike, that you've you've already you shared. We're the first ones to get to hear the name of your next book. The Joy of Clear Thinking. <laughs> and we cannot wait for you to get started on that one. <laughs> Great. Well, I've already started. So that's, that's, I don't know if that'll be the title, but I've started. Okay. But don't, well, I've got it written down, The Joy of Clear Thinking. And it just sure sounds like a great title to a book, if you ask me. You know, Mike, what are you learning about right now? Like, where is your mind maybe changing besides tennis <laughs> now you you laugh but actually that i'm really working i mean i'm taking these lessons and i'll tell you it is a it's a challenge and and the experience of the frustration and so on of to really try something that's new uh for me and this thing that's very familiar very thought-provoking you know changing something with which you have had years or decades of experience and then trying to modify it in a constructive way, I, I find it a very thought-provoking idea because it is uh, applicable in many different arenas. You know, what, what should I be doing? Should I be changing my life path in some way that might be interesting? Yeah, it's, a, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting time. Well, Mike, the fact that you are willing to work on your tennis forehand and make it better <laughs> is simply amazing. Your optimism and enthusiasm really reflect what an awesome teacher you are and the passion that you have for growth and change. And we are delighted for you to have been with us today and share your story. Well, thank you so much. You're very kind and it's been such a pleasure. And you two are wonderful. It's just, a, it's really a treat to, to be able to work with people such as yourselves. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and to provide feedback, please visit us online at texasptf.org. Thank you.